Mark, and we're going to have a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. Now, before I get started with a little bit of an introduction, I want to let you in, some, in on something that happened to me as I was preach prepping. Um, basically, I, Friday, I was trying to do preach prep. I was sat in front of my computer, and uh, my brain went, no. It just went, no. There was nothing coming. I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't sit still. And sometimes, I just fell asleep. And I was like, God, what's happening? I thought, I'm, I'm sick. Something's happened to me. I cannot see what your word is telling me. I can't see anything. I, something's wrong. So I did, I did the thing. I Googled. Oh, no. I Googled. And it was probably either some sort of life-threatening disease that I was going to immediately die or, or caffeine withdrawal. Now, if anyone else had said to me, oh dear, I really struggled with caffeine with driving, like, really? Really? Uh, but I can tell you, I made a switch from Yorkshire tea, fully caffeinated tea bags, to Yorkshire tea, decaf tea bags, unintentionally this week. And it hit me, man. I was jonesing for caffeine. Let me tell you. I needed that hit, and... Uh, I immediately went to the co-op, got some, got some tea bags, and then I could see, praise the Lord, I could see what his word was saying to me. That language of not seeing and seeing, we're going to pick that up as I preach, but I want you to remember that my preach may be a little bit uneven this morning. Some of it was written when I was, you know, going cold turkey from caffeine, and some of it was like, you know, a little crazy monster when I just had some proper full-on Yorkshire caffeinated tea bags. Okay. Enough nonsense from me. If you were here last week, uh, you would have heard Drew serve us really, really well when he unpacked the first half of chapter 8, where Jesus feeds the crowd of 4,000. And if you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to go online and have a listen to Drew's excellent message. But just to give you a little bit of context, Jesus has miraculously just fed 4,000 plus people with seven loaves of bread and just a few small fish. Then Jesus and his disciples all get into a boat and they head for the next village. But along the way, the disciples realize that they've forgotten to pack their lunch. And they only have one loaf of bread between all of them. Jesus uses this moment to teach them. And he tries to warn them about the the self-righteous, self-reliant religion of the Pharisees, which he likens to leaven. But the disciples don't get it. They are completely hung up about their lunch. So Mark 8, 14 to 21. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, you do not see. And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
you can almost hear the frustration in Jesus' words as he spells it out for them. He says, guys, if I, if I took five loaves and I fed 5,000, and I took seven loaves and I fed 4,000, what do you think I can do with this one loaf and you 12? Do you not yet understand who I am? Jesus knows the answer to this rhetorical question is no. They don't yet understand. Throughout his time with them so far, he's been slowly but surely, bit by bit, revealing who he is to them, whether through his teaching, his authority over demons, the various healing miracles, miracles of provision, walking on the water, calming the storm, in all these things, Jesus is progressively showing them his deity, his godhood. The problem is, as Jesus points out, even though the disciples have eyes and they have observed everything that Jesus has done, they still don't see. They don't see the fullness of who he is or the reality of his mission as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's this idea of not being able to see Jesus that leads us to our passage this morning. Mark 8, 22 to 26. We're going to start there. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back to the village on your way home. The first thing I want to say here is that this is a fantastic example of the sovereignty of God at work in the details of his creation. Jesus speaks to the disciples about not being able to see him, and the next minute a blind man is brought before him as if to like underline the point. But I don't want you to get the wrong end of the stick. It's not that Jesus heals this chap to make a point. It's that Jesus is Yahweh Raph. The Lord, your healer. And as he encounters this blind man, his heart is once again moved with pity and compassion. But he uses this moment to illustrate exactly what he's trying to teach those disciples. And it's really important because it helps explain a few things in this account. Firstly, one of the reasons Jesus takes the blind man out of the town is so that he can perform this miracle in a more private place, in front of his chosen audience, the disciples. It's not a big public miracle done in front of crowds. This is once again a teachable moment for his closest followers, because it's important. Secondly, it explains why Jesus performs this healing in two parts. Because that's weird, right? It's not that Jesus isn't powerful enough to do it all in one go. And it's not that he didn't get it quite right the first time and had to have a second try. It's that there's a progressive clarity to the way the blind man's sight is restored. At first, the blind man can't see at all. In terms of his sight, 
He can't perceive anything that's happening around him. He can get an idea of what's going on because he can hear things, um, he can smell things, maybe he can touch things, but he cannot see it. But then Jesus spits on his eyes and suddenly he can see something. It's blurry, hazy and out of focus, but even though his sight isn't yet clear, he can rightly interpret what he's seeing. He can see people. They look like trees walking about, which incidentally is exactly how people look to me first thing in the morning. But the point is he could see something. Now that's a 100% improvement, isn't it? He could see nothing, now he can see something. But Jesus had more. He placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and immediately he could see everything clearly. What was vague blurry, hazy, and out of focus, was suddenly sharp and crisp and crystal clear. At first, he could see nothing. Then he could see something. And finally, he could see everything. He couldn't see. He could see in part. And then he could see completely. Jesus could have healed this guy in one go. We see him do that to another blind person at the pool of Siloam in John 9. But here, Jesus is taking something physical, the healing of this blind man, and he's using it to illustrate something spiritual, the progressive revelation of who he is. And good old Peter is about to demonstrate the reality of this revelation in typically impulsive style. Let's look at verse 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you're the Messiah. Have we gone entirely? You're the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Do I need to change mic scale? Jesus starts a conversation with this really broad question. Who do people say I am? We could paraphrase what Jesus is getting at like this. How do people see me? And the disciples give a reasonably rounded response. They say, people see you as John the Baptist. And what this means is that some people thought Jesus was John, a preacher. Now, in one sense, that's a reasonable conclusion. It's wrong and completely confused, but I I get it. Jesus and John probably started their ministry at a similar time. They were a similar age and even came from the same family. You may know they were cousins. And they did preach the same message. Repent, turn to God, and believe the good news. But John never taught with the authority of Jesus. Never healed people like Jesus. Never cast out demons like Jesus. Never calmed the sea or the storm. Never walked on water or made baskets of bread out of individual loaves like Jesus. 
John was just the herald, the announcer. But Jesus was the main event. Some people saw Jesus as Elijah, a great man of God who was prophesied in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament to return and usher in the kingdom, rule, and reign of God. Again, close, but no cigar. Jesus himself says that John was the fulfillment of that prophecy. John was sent by God in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the kingdom of God that had arrived in Jesus. The disciples go on to say that some people thought Jesus was a prophet, someone who heard from God and spoke on his behalf. But here's the thing, to call Jesus a prophet is like calling the sun a light. There's truth to it, but it's degrees of magnitude wrong, right? The point is, all of these people couldn't see Jesus at all. You see, Jesus wasn't a preacher. He was the fulfillment of the message itself. Jesus wasn't just a great man of God. He was God in the form of man. And Jesus wasn't just a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. He was God who acted on behalf of his people. The world around Jesus could not see him at all, and it still can't. The world is like the man that Jesus has just healed, completely blind and unable to do anything about it of its own power. And so far in this story, the disciples have been in the same boat, no pun intended. But now Jesus narrows the focus, doesn't he? And instead of inquiring about how the rest of the world sees him, he asks the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? How do you see me? I want to be clear about something at this point. This isn't an idle question from Jesus. It's not that he's run out of things to say or that he wants to start an interesting debate. This is a question of life and death. And it's as relevant now this morning to you as it was 2,000 plus years ago to Peter and the disciples. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but sometimes in conversation, people treat this question as if it's just something to be debated about by religious types. As if it's got no significance to you and me here today. But I want you to know this this morning. This is the single greatest, most significant question that has ever been asked in the history of the world. Jesus says both to the disciples and to you this morning, who do you say that I am? Peter blurts out on behalf of the group, you're the Messiah. Your translation might have the word Christ. Christ is a Greek word and Messiah is Hebrew, but they both mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, this word was used to describe the king of Israel. It was used to describe him as God's chosen servant and implied the favor and blessing of God over him. 
This was especially true of King David, who was a mighty warrior that God used to establish his physical kingdom by defeating the various national enemies of God and his people. And God made promises to both David and his people about the future of the throne and the future of the kingdom of Israel. So that by the time of the New Testament, the word Messiah was used by the Jews to refer to a coming deliverer king like David. Their expectation was that like David, this king would defeat the national enemies of God and his people through military might and conquest. They expected that he would restore the kingdom of Israel, i.e. the nation of Israel, to its rightful place among all the other nations. Now this is probably what Peter had in mind when he cries out, you're the Messiah. In Matthew 16, 17 records Jesus' response to these words. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. Because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Peter, who along with all the other disciples was described as having eyes but not able to see just a few verses ago, is now commended by Jesus for seeing that he's the Messiah. At first, Peter couldn't see anything, but now he can see something. And just like the blind man, that wasn't his own doing, but was supernaturally, miraculously revealed to him by God. But Jesus warns the disciples not to share this information with anyone. Why? Because he knows that Peter still can't see clearly. And his apprehension or his understanding of this situation is hazy and blurry and out of focus. Like trees walking about. And that presents a problem for Jesus and is dangerous for the disciples, as we'll soon see. Verse 31 to 33. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter could see that Jesus was God's anointed king. But for Peter, this meant a David-like warrior who would smash the Roman war machine and restore God's physical kingdom of Israel. Imagine, imagine that's your thinking. And then Jesus just told you that he's got to suffer, be rejected, and die? What the heck is Jesus doing talking about having to suffer many things and be killed? What nonsense! There's no place for a martyred king on the battlefield. A dead king means defeat. It's as simple as that, isn't it? I, I can imagine Peter's good-hearted confusion and his desire to so, show Jesus a better way. I can imagine him saying, look, Jesus, don't talk like that, okay? 
It's going to be all right. It's going to work out. If you just stop winding the Pharisees up every time you see them, if you just keep your head down for a bit, it'll all be good. I know some lads. We'll hunker down in a cave somewhere. We'll get some swords, get some bows and arrows and stuff. Yeah, we'll train up and then we'll go and take it to the Romans. We'll let them have it. I can imagine him saying that. I might say that. But Jesus knows this is not God's plan. It's not the mission he's on. It's not the way things have to go down. And he's heard words like this before. Right at the start of his ministry, when he was tempted by Satan to take the easy way out, to take the wide gate, to go his own way and avoid the cross, the shame, the suffering, the separation from God, and ultimately to avoid his own death. So Jesus speaks to the voice behind Peter's. Get away from me, Satan, he says. He wouldn't give in to temptation then, and he will not give in to temptation now. He will obey the will of his Father and go to the cross. Jesus will lay down his life for the sins of the world. And after three days, he will rise again as a victorious king that has once and for all defeated the ultimate enemies of God and his people, Satan, sin, and death. And then he will ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father and he will rule the kingdom that he has established by his blood for eternity. That is what is laid out before Jesus. But Peter can't see this. Because as Jesus lovingly rebukes him, Peter's mind is set on seeing things the way the world does. Not the way God does in his infinite wisdom, reigning from heaven. The problem with Peter's fuzzy view of things is that if he and the disciples go around telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, the the glorious king who's going to eradicate the Romans, then Satan can use that to his advantage. He can try to hinder and impede Jesus' work by stirring up hatred and violence in the hearts of the Jewish people towards the Romans. And the disciples themselves would be in serious danger of being drawn away from Jesus and following a path of conflict and political and civil unrest. And that is not how the kingdom of God will be established. So Jesus tries to show Peter clearly what it means to be the true Messiah. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It means take up your cross and follow me. 
Now, this isn't some lame euphemism that means grin and bear whatever odious or unpleasant task you might be facing. These words meant only one thing to the people of Jesus' day, death at the hands of the Romans. Only Roman criminals were forced to carry the heavy crossbar of their own crosses to the place of their execution. And that was a fate reserved for the worst criminals, those who posed a direct threat to the governing and judicial powers of the land. Jesus himself would endure this ordeal. After having been condemned by the Jewish leaders and then whipped and beaten before his own execution at the hands of the Romans, he carried his own cross. What a horrendous and shocking reality check this must have been for Peter and the disciples. Like the siren sound of an alarm clock that wrenches you to consciousness from a nice pleasant dream. Following Jesus meant setting themselves against the mightiest powers known to them. Not in glorious pitched battle with military victory or certainty, but potentially by laying their own lives down as criminals. What it certainly meant is being despised by both their own countrymen and the foreign invaders. Now, I don't want you to read this wrong. Jesus is not teaching his followers to live out some sort of weird martyr complex and throw themselves on the nearest Roman sword. He's calling them to follow his example by laying down their right to exercise their own will in opposition to God's. And instead, like Jesus, to say to God the Father, your will be done, not mine. This is the reality This is the cost of following Jesus. And I want to tell you, it's the same today. When we assert our will over God's and we try to save our lives by doing the things we choose to do and behaving the way we choose to behave, we take the easy way out, the wide gate. We go our own way. But the truth is we might gain some of the things that we want in this life, but we'll lose everything for eternity in the next one. That's what Jesus is saying. And as Jesus poignantly says, what do you benefit if you were to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Peter was right that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, but he was wrong about the way his mission would be carried out. He would suffer. He would die for the sins of the world and he would rise again to eternal life. And the lives of his followers maintained that same pattern. There will be moments of suffering for every Christian and we will all die. But we will all also be raised with Jesus to a new eternal life. Jesus completes the full picture and he enables his disciples to see who he really is, not by continuing to talk about himself as the Messiah, who the disciples might be tempted to be ashamed of, but by referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is a reference to Daniel 7, 
Daniel was a man of God who had a dream about a mighty, glorious figure who approached God himself in the heavens. Daniel says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus couldn't have made things clearer to Peter or to us. He is the Messiah, the anointed one who would suffer and die to defeat God's enemies and establish his kingdom. But he is also the son of man. He is the only one who can stand in the presence of God and share in the sovereign authority that God has over all creation. Because he is God, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and it will have no end. That's what it means when Jesus says he's the son of man. At first, Peter couldn't see anything. Then he could see something, but at this point, he can clearly see Jesus. If I could have the worship team up, please. I want to finish with this point. In one sense, this side of the cross, we have the privilege and blessing that we do see Jesus clearly. Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer, we are able to see the whole of Jesus. God and man, saviour and sacrifice, servant and king. But in terms of God's activity and direction in our lives, the reality is we're more like the blind man. It can often feel like we're completely in the dark. We can't see anything. It's in these moments that Jesus takes us by the hand. And our job is to simply trust and follow where he leads. And when we do that, when we exercise our faith, Jesus opens our eyes a little and gives us a glimpse of what he's doing. And even then, it can be hazy, fuzzy, and out of focus, like trees walking around. But the joy is, it is enough for us to rightly interpret what he wants us to know. The danger is that sometimes we can be like Peter and in that moment, having received revelation from God about something, we can in the next breath set ourselves against what God is doing. We have to be proactive and guard our hearts against the temptations that Satan whispers in our ear. We have to ask God to help us through his spirit in us to set our minds on the things of heaven, not on the things of earth. Or else we can find ourselves looking for the easy path, the wide gate, the way that avoids suffering, difficulty, and conflict with the world. And we can try to exert our will and our choices over God's will instead of submitting them to God's heavenly wisdom for us. But that is not the way. That isn't following the example of Jesus and the call he's placed over our lives. When we do that, we need to confess our sins. We need to turn to God, receive his forgiveness, and then we need to take up our cross again 
and follow where he leads. Because the truth is we live in the now and not yet. Jesus has won the war, but our personal battle rages on. We don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God outworked here and now. We only see it in part. But there will come a day when we will see God's kingdom in all its glorious fullness. But until that day, 1 Corinthians 14 says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Which means we fix our eyes on Jesus. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because as Revelation 1.7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see. Here's my final thought. Can you stand? The world can't see who Jesus really is. They're happy to see him as a preacher, a man of God, or a prophet. But Jesus' question to you this morning is, how do you see me? Maybe Jesus has opened your eyes for the first time and you can see him this morning. Maybe what you see is blurry and hazy and out of focus. But I want to tell you, it's enough for you to rightly interpret what you see. If that's you this morning, then why don't you, why don't you speak to someone Someone here who's a follower of Jesus because Jesus wants to open your eyes fully so you can see him completely and clearly. Maybe there are people here who've tried to avoid taking up their cross, tried to avoid suffering, difficulty, conflict with the world. Maybe you've exercised your own will, made your choices above and beyond God's. Why don't you take this time in worship to repent to tell God you're sorry, to turn to him, to receive forgiveness and to pick up that cross again and follow where he leads. And maybe there are people this morning who are in situations where they just feel blind. I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't know where I'm going. I can't see. This is a moment for you to reach out and grab Jesus' hand because he's going to lead you and your job is to fall in behind, to follow where he leads. I'm going to pray and the worship team are going to lead us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you have given us your word, given us your spirit in us so we can see you clearly. Lord, I thank you that you are both the Messiah who has established your kingdom through your blood and you are the son of man who is coming on the clouds ready to establish your kingdom for eternity. And I pray for my brothers and sisters gathered here. If you are at work in their hearts, Lord, I pray, lead them through to obedience, whatever that looks like for them. Do your work in their hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.